0: Sunday evening we went through several passages from the Back to the Bible, pamphlet number one. And we answered questions from those verses and what I'd like to do with you this evening is to take a few of those passages and kind of put them in context and kind of explain or expand upon the meaning that is there. And so um, we have this workshop that will help us do just that. Every passage in the Bible has a context. Uh, it has a, a inner and outer context or an immediate and remote context. In other words, when we read uh, the Bible, uh, we look and see what is being said in that particular paragraph or that particular chapter or book. That's what we call uh, the immediate context. But then also we look at the verse or passage and see How it connects to the broader theme of salvation uh, uh, in the Bible. And so we want to take just a few minutes and and notice this with a few of these uh, verses. So I encourage you to um, write some of these thoughts down, some of the companion uh, passages. Write those down. If you write in your Bible... um, then maybe you can go home and take some of these and write them in the margins of your Bible. But if you don't, then at least uh, you'll have them um, to refer to. Part of our duty here on Winston Out is to cheer Larry little up. So to do that, sometimes I'll hear of a joke or two. And you're thankful it's just a joke or two. Okay. So, the past and the present and the future all walked into the same office, and it was tense. It's Larry's joke for the evening. All right. yeah, I, I saw a smile. I saw a smile. You know what John 8, 32 says? Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. This is the time when Jesus had gone up to be at the Feast of Tabernacles. He had uh, not gone up in the way his brothers wanted him to go up. They wanted him to go and make an open show of himself and and to really uh, attract attention. But it wasn't time for that. Uh, That would come about six months later at the next, feast, the Passover, where Jesus would be crucified, but at this time Jesus needed to still stay on earth. But he does go to the uh, Jerusalem, he, get, he does go to the Feast of the Tabernacles, he does teach in the temple uh, area, and um, so he's in the midst of this in, as we read in John uh, chapter 8. If you'll notice in John 8, as you read up to verse uh, number thirty. 1 and 32 uh, notice especially verse 30 Jesus had been talking about being the light of the world and some of the Jews hearing how he was connected to the father in heaven they began to believe in him And so then Jesus says in John eight thirty-one, if you continue in my word then you are my disciples indeed and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free so let's fill in some, some of these blanks here um There is such a thing called truth. That's an important ideal in our world. There is such a thing called truth. The the, uh, religious teaching of Jesus, the body of teaching of Jesus, is the truth. Is the truth. In our world, some would argue that there's no such thing as a uniform, universal truth that guides all men. Many today look to life and say, well, I am my own truth. I want to be my own truth. I want, to, I want to interpret things my way and I want to determine what is right and what is wrong. But in the truest sense, we cannot do that because God has revealed um, his, truth. his truth. So there is a such thing uh, called truth. And then uh, the second blank here, uh, truth is the opposite of error. Okay. Anything that is not of Jesus' truth, then uh, that is error. That's, that's something that's not right. Turn your Bibles, hold your place there, and go, go over to John 18 for a second. John 18. Notice Jesus' conversation with Pilate. Pilate had asked, what is uh, truth? And so notice verse 37. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And notice this, who, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Okay. So that's a pretty plain statement there. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So everything opposed to Jesus' teaching uh, in the Bible is something that is uh, uh, not right, it's error. Later in the New Testament, John in 1 John 4 will warn, 1 John 4, 1 through 3, to beware of false prophets. There are many false ideals that have gone into the world. Don't believe every spirit that comes along because not everybody is speaking in accordance to the teaching of Jesus John 832 and then also in regard to John 832 there is a condition called bondage there is a condition called bondage Jesus says the truth will make you free free from what free from what well we keep reading here in John 8 32 notice what the Jews say? They answered, verse John eight thirty three. They answered, "We are the offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved, or we've never been in bondage to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free?" And then Jesus, John eight thirty four, he said, "Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a bond servant of sin, is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever; the son remains forever." So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so they needed to understand that even though they were the the lineage of Abraham in the fleshly way, still everyone who lives sins. We're all sinners. And that makes us in bondage. In bondage. We're... And so notice that, the C part. And then... Uh, the D part is this, the truth is the only force which can set us free. The truth is the only force on earth that, that's the truth of Jesus, the only thing that can get us out of sin. So that's the basic teaching here of John 8 and 32. Now, for that truth to be the force in our lives, there are several little things that go along with that. First, we've got to recognize that truth. And then as Jesus says here, we've got to know that truth. But then notice these passages in 2 Thessalonians 2. There's two things there. Paul says we've got to believe the truth. And we've got to love the truth. So for, for us to have access to the blessings of Jesus and the cross. And for that truth to set us free we have to recognize it. We have to know it. We have to believe it. We need to love it at the same time. And then Paul in Galatians 5 and verse 7 speaks of obeying the truth. Obeying the truth. And then finally there in 2 Peter 1.12, we are to be firmly established in the truth. And so we see... That we want access to this truth. If the truth is the only thing that can set us free, then we need to see how to access it for our life. And there are more teachings about this bondage. You know, Acts 20, 28 uh, speaks of the blood of Jesus that purchases us. So as, as slaves of sin, the only way we can come out of that sin is for the blood of Jesus to buy us out of that, which occurs as we submit to his truth. So that all that combines together. All right. Let's quickly look at John four twenty four. Jesus, this time, is talking to the lady at Jacob's well. God is spirit, he says. They, they had talked about several subjects. Talked about the fact that she had had five husbands, and um, talked about how that um, there was the water of life that was much more important than the water that she had come to get at the well. But also, um, she mentions here, the lady does, that our fathers worship, worship in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people should worship. And then Jesus will eventually tell her here in John 4 that there's a time coming, hours close, when... People are going to worship the Lord in every place, whether it's Gerizim, whether it's Jerusalem, or whether it's uh, all across the world. The main thing that God is looking for is for those who to worship him in spirit and in truth. And so you remember this from John four twenty four. And so traditionally we have put three A's next to this verse. The proper aim in worship, of course, is God. The proper aim in worship is God. He's the only object of worship. And then Jesus said we should worship in spirit, so that would be the proper attitude. The proper attitude. What would be some attitudes that that are absolutely important in worship? Somebody share some of those with us. What would be some proper attitudes to come with as we're trying to worship God? Okay, reverence. Reverence, absolutely. Just because of the one that we are approaching in worship. Reverence. What else would you add Humility. Humility before bowing down. Worship carries with the idea of bowing down. That's right. yeah. Anything else you want to add to Submission. that? Hmm? Submission. Yeah, submissive. Ready to obey the Lord, uh, not only as we worship, but when we leave worship. More desire to worship God. I would add to that also uh, sincerity and joy. Both of those. So it's a combination of reverence, and humility, and submission, sincerity, and, and joy. It's, it's both a, a solemn time as we remember the death of Jesus, but it's also a time of joy as we claim victory uh, in him. Okay. So, there's the right aim in worship, and then there's the proper attitude in worship, and then there's the authority in worship, which is the truth. We worship in spirit and in truth. The aim, the attitudes and then the authority in worship. Who is the the audience in worship? God. God. The devil tries to disturb us in that, distort us in that. He, He would love for us to focus on ourselves, focus on someone else in worship. But we must keep our focus on God. He's the only audience there is in worship. God is spirit. And so notice here under John four twenty-four, God is not a work of gold, God is not a work of stone, or God is not a work of wood. God is not anything physical. God is spirit. He's invisible. He is the great and high God. And we we desire to know Him better and better. We walk by faith and not by sight. Second Corinthians five. In verse 7. right. Now, thinking just for a moment over in John 17, 17, you remember this is Jesus' prayer. This is the time when Jesus prays and it's almost as if he's in the very shadow of the cross. This is, uh, it seems like at the end of of John 14, they leave the upper room where he's been meeting with his uh, disciples And he's heading toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And somewhere in between those two places, he stops to pray this great prayer in John 17. So you see in John 17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them through through the truth. Thy word is truth. He's praying for his immediate disciples there. And then later in the prayer, he'll pray for everyone who believes on him. But notice leading up to this verse seventeen leading up to it. He's talking about how that it's not his desire to take the disciples out of the world, but rather to keep them from the evil one. Okay. So notice here under John seventeen, seventeen, Jesus prays that his disciples will be protected from corruption in the world. That's the first blank there under John seventeen, seventeen. Jesus prays that his disciples will be protected from corruption in the world. You just go back to verses 14 and read on up to verse 17 to see that. And so, the only force which can make this happen is, again, the truth. What does it mean to sanctify? Set apart. And one way in which we're set apart is that we are different from the world. We don't live like the majority of people in the world. We don't have to we don't have to go out of our way to be different from the world. We follow Jesus, we will be different from the world. So sanctify them through thy truth. Set them apart from the world. Through thy truth, thy word is true. Now, here's an important idea in the C part. There is a point at which this sanctification, this being set apart, uh, officially occurs. And to see this, let's turn over to Ephesians 5 for just a moment. Ephesians chapter 5, with the C part under John 17, 17. Let's jump over to Ephesians chapter 5. This is one of those passages that can be in the margin of your Bible right here. Ephesians 5, 26 Speaking of the church, Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, that he might sanctify the church, notice that, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. So this sanctification, this setting apart, officially occurs when we are washed by the water, the waters of baptism. When we come out of the waters of baptism, then we, as Paul says in Romans 6 and 4, we're walking in newness of life. Our sins have been forgiven. God then, in an official sense, he sets us apart from the world. We recognize that. We have made the commitment that from this point on, we're going to be servants of Christ and not servants of Satan. And so that's when that officially and then from that point on, we continue to follow the truth, follow our Lord in every respect that we can, give it our 120 percent effort, and we continue to learn how to be a, separate from the world and be servants of Jesus. So John 17:17. 17, 17. While we're in John 17:17, 17, 17, we need to go back to verse two, one and two. Notice at the beginning of the prayer, Jesus talks about glorifying God. How about somebody reading verses 1 and 2 of John 17 for us? These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should. Eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Okay. So Jesus here is praying in, in ten, anticipation of the authority that will be his. Okay. Officially, when he raised he's he's raised from the dead and he walks on the earth forty days, and then God has him ascend up on high, and he is set down on the right hand of God, then he is ruling. And he says, in anticipation of all that, he says, Father, now glorify me so that I can glorify you. Jesus is not asking to be glorified from any selfish sense, but rather so that the Father would be glorified. And the way the Father is glorified is through the fact human beings are saved from their sin. Notice what he says in the rest of verse 2 there so that I can give unto them eternal life. And we, will, we want to be part of that group. When, when folks receive spiritual life, when they're forgiven of their sins, that glorifies the Father. And so the reason Jesus wants to be glorified at his right hand is so that this salvation process can uh, continue, can, can be taught, and that's exactly how it occurred in the book of Acts. Uh, Hold your place there and look over to um, Hebrews 5 that goes along. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 goes along with John 17, uh, 2. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9 goes along with John 17, 2. It says, Hebrews 5, 8 and 9, Though he were a son... Yet learned he obedience through the things he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who do what? For all who obey him. And so, that goes along with this. The The son wants to be glorified so that he can glorify the father. And his goal there is so that he can give eternal life. To as many as possible. But those who get that eternal life. Are those who obey him. Obey his gospel. So it's a gift. But we respond. And receive that gift through obedience. John 17 uh, verse 2. Quickly over to John 12 and 48. If you look at the couple of verses before verse 48. 48 says, Jesus, speaking of judgment day in John twelve forty-eight, He that rejects me and receives not my sayings, see that in John 12, 48, has one who judges him, the word that I speak unto you, this same word will judge you in the last day. But what does Jesus say right before that? Somebody... See that and read it to us. John 12, 48, or 47. What does John 12, 47 say? If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not. For I came not to judge his words, but to say the word. Okay. So here in John twelve forty eight, he's saying, my word's going to judge you. But he's saying right here in verse 47, my present aim, my present goal, is to have as many as saved as possible. That's God's goal between now and the last day. Notice verse uh, 48 ends with the last day. What Jesus is saying here is, between now, he's speaking then, and that last day which is yet to come. Uh, his goal is that uh, he, through us, would um, save as many people as possible. He, he's not in the world at that time. He's not, it's not time for a judgment to be uh, made, uh, but rather for salvation uh, to be offered. So John 12 and 48. We need to, of course, swallow that again and again and again because his mission is our mission as well. Let's skip John 6 uh, right now and go jump over to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. And notice this great prayer of Paul in Ephesians 1. Remember now, our Back to the Bible pamphlet 1 is divided into five parts. The first part is establishing the authority of Jesus' words. The second part is to see how he put those words in the mind's and the hearts of his apostles. The third part of the pamphlet is that uh, what the apostles and other inspired teachers wrote down, those became Jesus' words as well. And God has no problem doing this. If he can bring us into the world and give us language and give us communication, then he has no problem putting his words where he wants them uh, to be. And so what is written now are the authoritative words of Jesus. The fourth part of that pamphlet is that we are not to add to those words or take away from those words. And then the final part is those words comprise the the New Testament, the new law, the new system of uh, Jesus. Now Paul is speaking of the authority of Jesus here in in, um, Ephesians 1. The prayer actually from Paul begins in verse 15, goes all the way down through 23. And you see that here. And Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he begins to tell us what he's praying about. Verse 17, Ephesians 1 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. So notice here that Paul is praying for them that they would have knowledge and continue to have the knowledge of God. For them, that meant listening to Paul's words and um, reading his epistles and then listening to any other apostle that might have influence in those days. The word, the final word was not yet complete, but for us, of course, it's listening to the whole New Testament. But he's praying, and this is a great prayer, great prayer. It ought to be a priority in our prayers that, um, that we are able to have the wisdom to receive the knowledge of God, uh, that, we, uh, that our children... Uh, Would have the same thing. And that of course those that were trying to influence for good would also have that same thing. There are so many blessings of having the knowledge of God through Christ. And that's what Paul begins to speak about here in uh, this prayer. After he says I pray that you'll have wisdom and knowledge. Notice he says verse 18 this will lead to uh, your eyes being enlightened. The light will come on. Okay. The eyes of your heart will be enlightened. And I wish we had time to give out a lot of passages about this. But note one. Uh, over in Acts 26 and verse 18. God as, as Saul of Tarsus was about to be converted. Uh, God said... I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, and through your preaching, you'll turn them from darkness to light. So the eyes of their heart will be enlightened. The only thing that can enlighten us is the truth of God. And so that's the first blessing there. And you see these passages on the right side of A under number 7, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. Revelation, Acts 26. All these have to do with the fact that when we receive that knowledge, then that leads to our conversion, and we have to keep that knowledge going in our lives. Turn your Bibles uh, to Revelation 3 and notice what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea in reference to this enlightening idea. You know and you remember from your reading that Jesus is very disappointed in this church because of their lukewarm attitude which had played over into their worship and their service. Verse 17, Revelation 3.17, he says, You say, I am rich, I I am prospered, I need nothing, not realizing actually that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And then he says this, and I I counsel you, of course he's speaking in spiritual terms, I counsel you to buy salve to anoint your eyes so that you may be able to see in other words, he's saying, you need to get back to knowledge. You need to get back to study. You need to get back to the epistles. You need to get back to the words of Jesus. They have become lukewarm because they had allowed their knowledge to grow weak. And so one of the great blessings of knowledge is enlightenment. being The light comes on. And then a second blessing is, uh, if you notice it here in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, Uh, is the blessing of the divine calling. okay? The divine calling. The hope, notice that, the hope of the divine calling. So through the knowledge of God we realize there is the ultimate hope of heaven. Over in Ephesians 4 verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called, and one hope of your calling. Ephesians 4 verse 4. So a great blessing of that knowledge is you come to realize that this life is not our home. This life is only temporary. That even though it's it's a great joy to serve now, the greatest joy is going to be in heaven. And then a third um, blessing from this knowledge, Ephesians chapter 1, is the riches of our inheritance. Ultimately, of course, that means heaven itself, the riches of our inheritance. These are just little phrases picked up here in Ephesians 1, but he's praying that they will receive knowledge. From that knowledge, the light will come on be able to see what you need to be and do. And then also, you'll be able to realize the hope of your calling. And then from this knowledge, you'll be able to realize that there are great riches of the inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 4 mentions heaven as our inheritance that fades not away. It's reserved in heaven for us. It fades not away. Acts 20, 32, Paul had said to the elders at Ephesus, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. These great blessings accompany the knowledge, the, the hope of the calling, the enlightenment, the, um, the riches of his inheritance, and then finally, uh, the part would be to be able to see the authority, know of the authority of Jesus, the rule of Jesus. Jesus is ruling right now. There are religious folks who say Jesus will not begin his rule Until he comes back to this earth, well, number one, Jesus is never coming back to this earth. And number two, he's already ruling. That's why he's on the right hand of God. And when Jesus does come, we'll meet him in the air, not on the earth. And when Jesus comes again, this earth will be destroyed totally by fire. He is now ruling over earth. You see that in Ephesians 1. His rule is incredible. It's not just... It's not just a rule over a small group of people, but notice how it is written here in Ephesians 1. In verses 20 to 23. It says in verse 21, Uh, Well, verse 20 says, He raised him from the dead and he is seated at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this life, but also in that which has come, put all things under his feet, gave him to be the head of all things to the church. And you know what that says. And so this knowledge brings to light so many wonderful blessings of serving uh, Christ. 1 John 5 and first, uh, verse 13, John writes, Brethren, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's get all these words uh, together. 1 John 5 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So you see what the answer here. How does one come to know he has eternal life? Through the things which are written. Things are written. Not from a good feeling. Not from um, a supposed direct communication from God. uh, Not from any of that. Those those are things of the Old Testament. Uh, Now, under Christ, we know whether we are following God through what has been written down. Be part under First John 5, 13. The sum of what is required in becoming a Christian is expressed in this phrase to those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus. Those who believe in the Son. You see, over in Acts 2, when the brethren had heard Peter preach, had become convinced of their sin, how that they had actually uh, been on the wrong side concerning the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter let them know that this Jesus whom you crucified, God, was made both Lord and Christ. They were pricked in the heart by this. And they asked, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized for forgiveness. Those that gladly received his word were baptized. Acts 2.41 In Acts 2, 43 and 44, the inspired writer calls these people, these folks who had responded to Peter's invitation, calls them believers. He says the believers were together and had all things common. And so belief oftentimes is just a way of summing up what one must do to become a Christian. It embraces... The idea of repentance, it embraces the idea of confession, embraces baptism. And that's not us saying that, that's just simply how, uh, like Luke, who wrote Acts, uh, that's just how he describes it there in Acts 2. Okay. Right. And as we said, part of the booklet back to the Bible 1, is when we realize that God has placed his authority in in the written words, we can't add to or take away from those words. We we cannot tamper with God's gospel. Um, In the pamphlet, there is um, an Old Testament passage mentioned, Deuteronomy 4 verse 2, that even with the old law of Moses, they were not to add to that or take away uh, from it. And we know that the new law is superior to that old law. And so God uh, says some similar things concerning the, the new law. But here in Galatians 1, Paul says, he warns that if any man comes to you or any, even an angel comes to you and preaches any other gospel than that which we have preached in you, let him be what? Cursed. It's a serious thing to tamper with what God has written down. That brings the wrath of God. What that means to be accursed of God is to experience His wrath so that's why I'm, we want to be careful. Paul was disappointed in the Christians in in the area of Galatia. He traveled through there, places like Derby, Acts 14, and Lystra and Iconium. This was the southern part of the Galatian area, and he's writing back to these brethren. and He was astonished, as you read in Galatians 1:6, that they had so quickly removed themselves from the grace of God, from what they had been called to, to a different gospel. He was astonished at it. He was just, he was uh, shocked uh, by this. And then he says, this is not really another gospel, but you have perverted the gospel. And what they were doing there, under pressure from their Jewish friends, they were trying to combine parts of the old Mosaic law with parts of the gospel system and they had distorted things and it was leading them astray and a good part of our of the protestant world around us today they do the same thing they try to combine teachings of christ with the teachings of moses and come out with all sorts of ideas and proclamations it just doesn't work and they would be under the same curse that Paul is relating to the brethren in Galatia. Alright, so just trying to set in context some of these verses that we went through Sunday, very powerful verses, and they relate not only to what's being said when they're said, but also they relate very well to uh, other things that are said about salvation in Scripture. It's good to be together in this class this evening, and we'll take just a short break.